ordinary people collectively aware of themselves as agents of social change, as holding within their collective hands the power to create a new world. Welcome back to On the Tier with the Berkeley Underground Scholars. This episode will kick off a special series on the history of solitary confinement in California's state prison system and the movement to end the practice of indefinite isolation. This culminated in the historic statewide hunger strikes, which tens of thousands of incarcerated people participated in between 2011 to 2013. With the support from Unlock the Box, this series is brought to you by Danny Murillo, co-founder of Berkeley Underground Scholars, and Dolores Canales, co-founder of California Families to Abolish Solitary Confinement. In this episode, your host, Daniela Medina, is joined by Dr. Jonathan Simon, professor at UC Berkeley and underground scholar Joshua Mason. Joshua Mason is also the principal author of the Underground Scholars Language Guide, which is available on our website. This series serves as a toolkit to help other states follow California's lead to end long-term solitary confinement. Ain't no sunshine. 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 In a general population prison, it isn't uncommon to hear a collection of sounds, people talking and interacting with one another. But what happens when you're alone? For those in solitary confinement, there is very little opportunity to hear the sounds of others. cell 22 and a half hours a day and then our yard is just brick walls i'm not able to go out to a yard and be with other people because i'm not able to see um, things around me whether it's trees grass birds to talk to my family um, to get sunlight all right so thank you both for being here we really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us Today, we'll be talking a little bit about Pelican Shoe and the history of solitary confinement in California and gang validations. Professor Simon, can you give us an overview of solitary confinement in California? Of course, solitary confinement is, is in many ways a, a, a trick of name, you know, because there have been many forms of the shoe over, over the centuries, really, although I think there are distinctive features to the modern shoe that was created in California. But uh, uh, clearly, Folsom and San Quentin, long before the era of the shoe, had solitary confinement cells 
in them and and they were used as a disciplinary method against uh, in prison people that were rebelling against the the prison regime um really the 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 prequel in many ways to the shoe we all know today as one of the great sort of monstrosities of modern corrections was the uh, San Quentin um, Adjustment Center, which was essentially a special security unit that was created in the 60s. I think initially it had some quasi rehabilitative ideology associated with it, but by the time of the 1971 San Quentin uprising, it was used exclusively as a punishment and an isolation technique against what were then an increasingly politicized group of prisoners who were challenging the basic racial structure that was still prevalent in California prisons. That rebellion, which many of your listeners will have heard about, George Jackson, the political theorist, revolutionary leader, Black Panther, prison human rights, campaigner, you know, died in that event. The only way the oppressor can maintain his position is by fostering, nurturing, building contempt for the oppressed. The brutality really leads to more resistance and that's what we're working for, revolution. The institutions uh, that buttress the, the establishment uh, have to be assaulted. Six other imprisoned people who participated in the rebellion survived. They came to be known as the San Quentin Six, and they were on trial for years. I mean, years and years. And during that time, they were, in a sense, in a in a mobile shoe. They were shackled most of the time. They were heavily punished by the prison, which viewed them as total rebels against the prison order. And so, one way to think about the shoe that began to be planned in the early late 70s, early 80s, is that it was an effort to create essentially a purpose-built structure of punishment and isolation that would sort of replace this more ad hoc regime they had created to deal with the San Quentin Six and, and other rebels. They were also, I should add, facing a lot of court pressure. And I, it seems ironic now, but I think they thought that this shoe would be, they could make it modern and it would be all up to date and the courts would let them do whatever they wanted there. And I'm happy to talk about sort of more about the run up to the actual building of the shoe, but I think that gives you a sense of the history. The shoe opened, I believe in 88, something in, in that range, but it was being planned already a decade earlier. So how did we get to the shoe model? I mean, you kind of went over that. And, and there's a lot of history of prisoner resistance through all of that. Let's talk about the actual prison shoe model today. I mean, in many ways, I think we have to stay with the theme of the San Quentin uprising because not everyone, you know, it's different historians and different observers will have different interpretations. I think in a lot of ways, the prison establishment was convinced that they were going to be facing, you know, 100,000 George Jacksons eventually, and they wanted to build an infrastructure that would let them control that. As it was, the period of open rebellion in California prisons didn't actually last that long, and the main, what was perceived as the main threat that correctional officers could be killed disappeared very, very quickly. I think a number of correctional officers were killed in the uprising itself. And that year, maybe a total of eight were killed. And then if you look at the numbers, it pretty much stopped after that. And so by the time they actually built the shoe in the 80s, 
while the prison population was growing, it was not at all the rebellious prison in prison population that they had been dealing with in the late 60s. On the other hand, they, they did have these new, what they called prison threat groups, which were really the, the legacy of the political era when in prison people basically created organizations that could represent them in, in, to each other and to the prison establishment. And so the, the system, partly believing that these were just George Jackson's you know, legacy and that they would become rebellious again and, and needing to justify this massive expensive expenditure on security, they, they shifted to defining the, the so-called threat groups as the main target of the shoe. And the logic was, oh, well, we can, we can shut these, these gangs, these threat groups down if we take their leaders and everyone who's essentially involved on an engaged level and we, we isolate them in these purpose-built shoes, we'll both deter people from becoming involved with the groups and we'll basically render them dysfunctional. If that was ever true, it ceased to be. I, I mean, it, I, the, I believe the shoe never worked as planned, that it, it never effectively shut down communication among imprisoned people. Um, obviously, much more recent time, we know that the hunger strike spread out from the shoe and that the leadership in the short corridor did not seem to have problems getting the word out to, to people and whatnot. So it's hard to imagine the shoe ever worked as planned. And then I guess the final thing I'll say is, you know, you can't underestimate how much organizations like the CDCR and like the, the organized prison guards in the CCPOA as they developed in that era, internalize their own worst nightmares and, and become them in a lot of ways. But they, I think, you know, they genuinely believe that they're constantly under threat, that they're in a war situation, that anything goes in terms of what they need to do. And so I think the idea of a prison that would be kind of remote control where, where human beings would not have to encounter each other on any kind of regular basis became very, very attractive to the internal audience. You know, uh, uh, the, in many ways, the internal audience of the guards union and the correctional management itself and their legislative sponsors is much more important than ordinary Californians who were never really given a serious choice about the shoe. As Professor Simon mentioned, the shoe was designed to keep prisoners, namely those with political consciousness, segregated from the rest of the prison population to eliminate the fear of political uprisings within the prison. Yet incarcerated folks such as the group of men, often referred to as a short corridor collective, managed to find human connection within the very same walls that were created to confine them. Now that we have talked about the history of solitary confinement, we would like to turn things over to our guest, Joshua Mason. Joshua now works as a certified gang expert and is a survivor of Pelican Bay's solitary housing unit, also referred to as the SHU. Joshua, thank you for being here with us to share your experience. What is Pelican Bay SHU? If I had to define it, it is a place that's intended to break people and not just break people in terms of their associations, but break us in the most basic forms, right? I think every international body and organization and group that has looked at 
the Pelican Bay Zoo in particular and the notion of, of solitary confinement as exercised in the United States is torture. And I think sometimes the resiliency of those who make it out of that environment seemingly unscathed or less scathed on the surface than others is scapegoated as quote unquote proof that it's not, right? The shoe's not so bad because look at person A, right? The shoe's not so bad because look at these television programs where we interview people in the shoe. And that's a particular population and subgroup of those in solitary confinement, obviously that get interviewed. So they don't, not only do they not represent the masses, but they also don't adequately represent even who they were because they're operating as a proxy of CDC. But so the shoe is, it's quote unquote for the worst of the worst. I obviously don't believe that. I think it's propaganda. But as Professor Simon was saying, CDC and the CCPOA and, and those sympathetic to their cause really believe that though. They, they sincerely believe that the shoe is an absolutely necessary step to protect themselves, to protect other incarcerated people from the predatory antics of those that are put in the shoe and to protect the broader society from, from these quote unquote monsters. When in reality, man, we're your neighbors, you know? Joshua, if you feel comfortable sharing any of the conditions that you saw or that were experienced while being in shoe. Absolutely. So I did, and thank you for the opportunity to, to share this stuff. Um, I had a 10 year sentence. I did the better part of nine years of that. And and roughly half of it was spent in the shoe. Um, I was validated as a prison gang member. I went to the Corcoran shoe first for about six or seven months as a layover to prepare me, I guess, to go to Pelican Bay. And the Corcoran shoe was a little more open in the sense of the housing situation. And so it was more like a, a traditional prison. And, and so there's a lot more people on the tier. In Corcoran, I was allowed to have a celly in the shoe program, in the Pelican Bay shoe, I was not. The yard rotation in Corcoran was very different than in the Bay. So in Pelican Bay, we went to the yard every day, right? And if you go as an individual, you can go with your celly if, if you want, but if you have a celly, you'll generally rotate going to the yard. Is that because if you both go to the yard, then they will shake up your room? And for those who don't know, shake up the room is a self-search. They will shake up the room and also just, you know, you're living with them 24 seven. And so it's nice to get a little break once in a while. But so in, in Corcoran, they used to just have these cement yards that you would go to from your building. And they were kind of, the yard was split in half with a wall. And when that was the only yard to go to, uh, because I came after the gladiator fights. So I came after the era in which they would would let people out there for not even let actually they would force people out there particularly the mexican population was forced just because of of kind of how the north and south operated they if the door opened and they said yard the seals knew we're gonna go to yard 
and and the blacks and the whites did that for a while and then they got kind of tired of it right so that was a whole setup where where they would put people out there that they knew would engage in combat with each other and it wasn't even personal i know several people that experienced the gladiator fights and and it wasn't even personal it, it was just business and folks were equally upset on all sides because people are getting forced into a, a conflict that everybody knows is going to happen and nobody wants to happen except for the guards, right? So anyways, they had stopped the gladiator fights by the time I got there due to a whistleblower and lawsuits and, and public scrutiny. But their retaliation, so to speak, was then you only get to go to a yard on rotation. So they come down to tier They'd say, hey, you get to go to yard. And then the cell next to you gets to go to yard. Well, nobody gets to go to yard that day because they said there's no place to put you. So it can take weeks before you get to go back outside. And there's no day room or, or anything like that. So the constitutionally allowed or required time to be outside was denied us. And it was for the safety and security of the institution, right? Then they built the dog cages on the yard. And so Corcoran's down by Fresno, Kings County, and it gets very hot. And the dog cages have no covering. They're literally like dog kennels that are just a little bit higher and they're just next to each other. Um, I don't remember exactly how many there is, but you're talking dozens and dozens. And so if you wanna go to yard, you get put out there in the dog cage and then you stay out there all day. So you're out there for the morning time you go out there generally in your boxers and a t-shirt and you just sit in the sun. And, and I mean, you could work out, but you can only work out so much, right? You're out there for hours and hours. There's no real private communication because they can hear all the talking back and forth. So some people will talk, but it's all monitored. You have a toilet in the dog cage for you. Um, then they started turning off the water for the vast majority of the time. Um, because they said people were flooding, although that doesn't necessarily make sense because it's a cage and you're in a dirt field. So you can't really flood, right? Like the water just goes out. But anyway, so so we got more yard then, but the conditions were were pretty rough. And so, but you go, right? You you still go. And then, I, like I said, after about seven months, I got transferred up to Pelican Bay and I was in C3. Um, there's two wings to the shoe, C wing and, and D wing. Um, and there, in terms of the layout, which, I mean, you can get this information in a lot of places, so I won't go into a ton of detail about it, but it's essentially eight cells, four on the top, four on the bottom, and then a ninth cell, uh, you know, a, a fifth cell, so to speak, on each tier, but that's just the shower. You know, your cells are the pine cone setup or, or like a gridiron thing. And, and so there's a bunch of little holes in it, which means you can always see inside and you can always see outside, but the little dots are a little bit smaller around than say your index finger, you know, so you could squeeze maybe half your pinky through there. And that's how we would shake hands with, with other guys when they walked on the tier. You never come out of your cell when anybody else comes out of their cell. Um, the guards control that. Every once in a while, they will pop the doors. Um, again, the, the, the Mexicans, right, the North and the South had established a door policy after years and, and frankly, just after the CEOs killing a bunch of people and said, hey, once again, 
we may not get along about some things, right? We, we may have our differences, but we're not trying to kill each other because they're setting us up to, right? And it, it's, um, I was neighbors for with people from the South for years and years and years, and we got along great. There was no desire between either one of us to get into a physical combat. But if they popped our doors, you know, back before we would be required to, and the SEALs knew that. And so, and you get out there and you, you, you try to hurt each other and then the SEALs kill one of you, right? And so there was an agreement with some of the stuff in some sense laid the foundation for what came later with the hunger strikes and the organizing amongst various groups, right? Is, is uh, you, you know, there was a resurgence of kind of the Jackson mindset that, that Professor Simon was talking about in the sense of we are not each other's greatest enemy, right? We are all housed in the same situation we generally come from very similar demographics, maybe geographically different, but demographically in terms of the communities that we come from and the way that we did our time on the main line and that sort of thing, we're actually pretty similar. Um, and, and specific with North and South, right? Just, just culturally, we're, we're actually very similar. And so, uh, you know, so steps were taken to, to try to reduce that violence at least between us. But you go to a yard, there's a yard at the end of your little section, and it's roughly 30 feet square. The walls are about 30 feet high. Half of it is covered with a plexiglass, the other half is covered with a net. And so condition-wise, that is the most isolated. Pelican Bay is the most isolated. I've been in ADSEG in every prison that I've been to. I've, like I said, I've been in the Corcoran Shoe. I've been in the Pelican Bay Shoe. I've never experienced that degree of isolation. And you're essentially around the same people for years and years and years. And there's not many, Pelican Bay, very few people have cellies. I wasn't allowed to have a cellie. I had some neighbors that were allowed to have cellies, but their cellies came and got taken in the middle of the night on various occasions. And so moved to other parts of the prison and it could take months to find out where they went, right? And all that's intentional. Every move that the SEALs make in Pelican Bay in particular, this is true across prison in general in California, but specific to the Bay, every move they make is intentional. Everything they do is a calculated step. And so it, it's meant to disrupt, right? It's just meant to disrupt you. And if they see you starting to look comfortable, they will strive to make you uncomfortable. And because the belief is when you're uncomfortable, you're not in a position to plot on how to kill them. They actually think that we just, and, and I've seen the propaganda and I've seen the news clips and I've seen the press releases. And it's often said, and frankly, in my experience, never true <laughs> that that we're just sitting around 24-7 plotting on how to attack the CO. The Pelican Bay Sioux is perhaps the most respectful environment you could ever encounter in the Department of Corrections. It, it is quiet. You know, there's some conversation that happens. It's respectful conversation. It's polite conversation amongst those that are incarcerated. The interactions with the guards are overwhelmingly done respectfully on our part. I can't always just say the same for the guards. But in terms of those that are incarcerated there, there's real effort put into conducting yourself as a professional and representing yourself and the other folks in that environment, particularly those that, that uh, you know, that you sort of align philosophically with, but also just the broader shoe environment. And, and folks tend back there tend to be pretty well educated 
there's a lot of reading, there's a lot of studying. And so anyways, you can go to the yard. There's not at that time that I was there, there was nothing out there. I think leading up towards the hunger strikes or maybe as a result of them, they wound up putting like a hand, like a pull-up bar out there and a ball, right? They didn't have that when I was there. I wouldn't say that the introduction of those things makes a material difference in, in somebody that's incarcerated. There's life, so it's kind of for show. Um, every little thing is, is, is welcome, but it's not rehabilitation. You know, it, it's a pull-up bar. Um, the sun never touches your skin. I left prison looking like I was an albino. Like I, I, my skin was translucent in a lot of places. I didn't realize how sickly I looked until I, I got home and somebody took a picture of me at Christmas time and I looked at it. All my tattoos looked like they were drawn on with Sharpies. But you don't realize it up there because all the other folks that are incarcerated look the same, right? And, and, and so it becomes normalized after years. And, and then you come home and you're like, man, you don't realize what the lack of that exposure to sun does to you. You know, and then you learn, right? You, you, you get educated and you learn that there's actual physical component to that, right? Like you, your body breaks down in a material way from lack of exposure to sunlight, from lack of exposure to nature. Um, but also psychologically, I, I had medical issues when I was in prison and I went to the hospital and there was a time, you know, I'm shackled to the bed, right? Of course, but I'm at an outside hospital and the doctor comes in and he's not a prison doctor. You know, this is just a legit hospital because my conditions exceeded the capacity of, of the prison to address. And he reached out to shake my hand and introduce himself. And I had no idea how to react. I froze. And a million thoughts are running through my head, right? Like, is this a setup? What do I do? And if I shake his hand, are these seals going to jump on me? Like what? And I had a panic attack. As a grown man who considered myself physically and mentally and emotionally fit, I had a panic attack because another man reached his hand out to shake mine. And he said, it's okay, man. We're two men. You can shake my hand. What's your name? And even that question threw me for a loop because I had a nickname, but I didn't feel like it was appropriate to tell the doctor my nickname, but I never used my regular name. The COs don't ask your name. They ask your CDC number, what's your last two? And they all know my last name, so they don't have to ask me for it. And, and it's those quote unquote little things that sort of eat at you. And, and, but you don't realize it until you're put in a situation where you're like, man, I'm woefully unprepared for this basic humor interaction. I have lost the ability to have normal engagements, quote unquote, with normal people. And that's what the suit is designed to do. You know, I, I saw men come in there who were healthy and, and sharp mentally. And in a matter of months, they're spreading feces on the wall and they can't form a coherent sentence. And they don't know who they are. They think they're somebody else. And, and at the time, we used to view those people as weak, right? At least for myself. I, I don't want to speak for other people, but I think it was a consensus. We'd see those people as somehow weak and inferior, like, oh, the suit broke you. You can't handle it back there. And you see the people that decide to cooperate with law enforcement and drop out. All those people are weak, right? And, and, and I still hold my own reservations towards folks, but I've been out of prison for, for going on 16 years. And now I look back and, and I'm like, man, maybe some of them were 
we're the, we're the smarter ones, you know, like what do we endure all that for, right? Uh, um, and none of us care. I've, I've know a lot of folks that have done solitary confinement time. I count a lot of them as, as really good friends. None of us came out untouched. None of us came out unscathed. We may not have digressed to that degree, but but nobody leaves there unharmed. Thank you for sharing that, Joshua. And I know that's got to be tough just talking about it and and reliving it. And and I know that it doesn't go away easily. I mean, I spent maybe like five months in shoe, nothing compared to <laughs> the time that you've done. And it's definitely affected me in a lot of different ways. Um, so I can only imagine, you know, what you still have to endure and go through all these years later. And talking about those conditions, there was a lot of litigation that came out of it. A lot of, you know, we talked about the hunger strikes and, and um, some of the conditions that led up to it. Do you mind describing or talking about the Madrid versus Gomez case? I can say a little bit about that. And let me just say, I'm very, I want to hold space for just a powerful testimony that we just heard from Joshua uh, about the inner experience of the shoe, because I read a lot about it and read the documents. And I, if people want to know more about the history, I encourage people to look up Karamit Ryder's book, 24-7, which really tells the story. And I, you know, to put in some context, the most, to me, the most damning point Joshua made, which is that this whole thing is set up to, to break people, to, to harm them, right? I mean, we used to say that, you know, prison was about rehabilitation. And then we said it was about punishment with dignity, like you're going to serve your time for the crime you did. And then by the time we got to the 80s, it had turned into a war against uh, other human beings that were defined as the enemy, basically. It was what we did at Guantanamo later, we were already doing basically in California. Many more people died in our prisons than in Guantanamo, if you think about it. it's uh, And many more were tortured. <clears throat> and to understand why that happened, there's a couple of things to notice, and then I'll get to Madrid. One is, and, and Joshua's story is, uh, exemplifies this, by the time California built the shoe, they had created a prison system that had no incentives for imprisoned people to try to work through the system to get out early or to get set up to have more success on the outside. It was all about punishment. If you got sentenced to 10 years, you were going to do those years, except for good time credits. I imagine you could accumulate a certain amount of, but it was, it was a system that was essentially all sticks, no carrots. And when you have a, a system that's all sticks, you have to have pretty big sticks. And the bigger the system, the bigger the sticks have to be. And so they really did create a system that was designed to go as far as you could to sort of physically torture people within a system that they knew would be examined by the courts. So let's talk about the courts. I mean, Pelican Bay was born out of the courts in many ways because the state of California and CDC had been sued continuously throughout the period we're talking about. And as a law student, I actually was in some of the Toussaint litigation as a, as a law clerk, you know, visiting the, the prisons and whatnot. But a lot of that was concentrated on Folsom and San Quentin. And so one of the things they wanted to do was build a new prison where those lawsuits would no longer apply to them. And this is one of the things people don't appreciate about civil rights litigation is that the American model is that it's usually very, very specific to the institution that's being sued. I mean, Brown versus Plata was unique because it put the whole system on, on, under one court regime. But mostly, you know, you get an order and this happened ultimately with Madrid. 
too, that it was only about Pelican Bay. And so the system was allowed to continue to do a lot of the same things they did there at other prisons. So they built Pelican Bay thinking, um, we'll create a whole new security apparatus in a prison that's not under court order and we'll make it. They had already gotten some good hints from the Supreme Court of the United States that as the Supreme Court put it in Rhodes versus Chapman, a 1981 case, prisons don't need to be comfortable. The, 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 and so they knew that they had a green light there. It's, it's not torture if it's just being uncomfortable, right? So they were gonna make it as uncomfortable as they possibly could, but they were also confident that it would hold up to the courts. And that's where the great Delton Henderson, uh, who, who's on the courts for many years and one of our greatest graduates of Berkeley Law, a, a great hero of civil rights, both in his youth and for much of his career on the bench, happened to be the federal judge that was assigned this civil rights suit. The suit was focusing on a number of issues ranging from that the overall regime was essentially torture. We would say a violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment because that's our legal term of art for this. There was also concern about the number of people who were mentally ill that were decompensating the, what Joshua was referring to. There were both increasing numbers of people who were being imprisoned already living with mental illness who were being shipped there because the system didn't know how else to handle them. And then there were people who were breaking down and becoming mentally ill because of the issue. And then there was this incredibly violent regime of cell extractions. Um, the irony is they built this system claiming that it would be a kind of velvet glove where they would never have to get tough with anyone. But in reality, um, they ultimately had to use this method that they called cell extraction. And I'm sure it's still practiced, but it reached a very excessive level to the point where they were, you know, hundreds of times in a year, they would be assembling these teams that uh, are sort of like a SWAT team. They're, they're, they're dressed to do combat. And essentially it's another form of physical torture. I think they decide when they really want to punish somebody and they do a cell extraction. So I've been extracted from myself and I've also witnessed cell extractions. And I would say that it, it's exactly as, as you described, right? It's, it's for those who watch like the shock and awe, it, it's that's what it is and but it's not only rough to go through you you really become in a no-win situation and it's sort of like uh, uh you know more common now is 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 videos of interactions that people in society have with police where they scream stop resisting while they're pinning you down and twisting you in in these positions right and and so it's kind of ironic because you're you're not resisting, but you also can't necessarily move and and comply, right? They're they're maneuvering you, and you know that's going to happen in a cell extraction. From just kind of from personal experience, you know what's going to happen already, right? You're going to get beat up. All that's going to happen. So what's your incentive to to have them come and put handcuffs on you, right? What is your incentive to deal with it, quote unquote, peacefully when there's going to be nothing peaceful that happened? You're going to get beat up. It's, you know that already. So if I'm going to get beat up, I might as well hold on and, and wait this out as long as I can and, and try to preserve some level of dignity. It's not rebellion against the system. It's not this grand strategy. It's not this uh, political warfare mindset. It's survival. It, that's all. And, and it's survival is the most human thing 
that there is, right? Our bodies and our brains are, are wired to adjust to circumstances so that we survive. And, but it's also as a, as a witness of cell extraction, it's scary, you know, and you feel helpless. So it's an intimidation tactic for the whole, you know, for everybody. So it, it's immense pressure on the people that are in the cell. And sometimes they'll do multiple cell extractions at the same time, right? They'll, they'll kind of pick a group and, and go after a few people. Sometimes it's just one. And, and it is certainly a, a form of retribution, right? The, the CEOs are mad at you for some reason or another. It, it, so it's not a control technique in, in terms of you're a threat. You're locked in a cell. By definition, a cell extraction means you're already locked in your cell. You're not hurting them. It's not like they come to a cell extraction because you have a celly and you're killing them. Why right? are they it's, hurting people? Why are they killing um, what, was, what was the point? So, uh, so for us, uh, we got hogtied. You get beat up in a cell, right? And man, it's a whooping, right? Um, and, and then they hogtie you and they pull you out into the hallway because now you're not in view of other people in cells. And they kick you and spit on you and talk crazy to you. And they have an MTA, which is not really a nurse, I think. I don't know the particular qualifications, but... Somebody who give, can give you, like, Advil and put on... Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so I guess they're supposed to form, like, a triage role. In my experience, their capacity, it tends to be fairly limited in either what they know or what they're able to do or what they're willing to do. And so the MTA comes and, and they write up a form that clears you medically, right? You're okay. Um, you're not okay. You're lumped up. You're, you're bleeding. Uh, you've been pepper sprayed with enough pepper spray to, to stop a uprising in the street. It's very close quarters. Everybody's sprayed. When you witness a cell extraction, uh, in Corcoran in particular, the whole, everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting choked out. Nobody can breathe. Uh, even though you're not a part of it. And so anyways, they pull you back in the hallway. For us, at least, they pulled you back in the hallway, uh, touched us up a little bit more. And mind you, we were on video. So they come with a video camera. And the video, there's this whole process in the beginning, right? Where they, hey, man, this is your last warning. Hey, we're going to do this. Do you know this is going to happen? This is what's going to happen. It's all a... a display for the camera right see this person had fair warning this person had a chance to just comply with what we're asking very nicely and they elected not to and that's what the video is for the video is not for the whole experience and so uh and, and so yeah they pull you back they write up a slip that says you're okay you get a write-up for inciting a riot and you get put back in a cell. Sometimes you get put back in the same cell. Sometimes they move you to a different cell in a different section. So Joshua, you, you did say earlier that you were validated, right? Yes. Um, so were you validated, you said, as a prison gang member associate? What's the difference between that and like a, a shoe infraction or like uh, something like that to get sent to, to shoe? What is, what is the difference between those two? Good question. So there's two ways to get to the shoe program. One is 
essentially you've committed a felony behind bars. So nobody goes to the shoe for what they did on the streets or for what they did to go to prison. You only go to the shoe for your behavior in prison. And if you get in a fight on the yard or something like that, you would go to the ad seg. So you would go to the solitary confinement within that prison, right? But the shoe is, is, is a whole separate, you know, setup as we've been talking about. They got a handful of them. And so essentially you got to commit a felony in prison. So you stab somebody really good. You get caught with a lot of drugs. Those are really the only two things. Right. Those are really the only two things. Yeah. Yeah. Stab somebody, kill somebody, um, get caught with lots of drugs. Like I said, uh, you know, something that is a felony, basically, that you get referred to the DA and there's a prospect of, of you getting more time. Or you're validated as a prison gang member or associate, I suppose. And that just requires, it's generally based on confidential information, which you don't get to see. That was a big part of the legal work that I did in prison, trying to fight mine and other people's validations. Nothing on the class action level of, of uh, Madrid Gomez or, or Castile was doing a ton of work when I was up there. And uh, but it's it's generally confidential information. Sometimes it's because you have a birthday card that a lot of guys on the yard signed. And you might hold on to that birthday card for years. Over the course of those years, one of those guys might have been labeled as a prison gang member and sent to the shoot. Now they come back and look at your card and they say, hey, you have prison gang members as associates because they signed your birthday card 12 years ago when you were over there in Soledad. So now you're actually a prison gang member too. It could be tattoos, welcome birds, Aztec shields, that kind of thing. But confidential information is, is the most. That's what they got me on, was um, several what they call 1030s. And the form is very basic. Actually, all my 1030s were filled out by the same CO. They were warm. Literally, when they handed them to me, they had just printed them. But yet, they reflect the confidential information that was supposed to be gathered from multiple prisons. Most of them just said that a reliable informant who has provided information deemed reliable in the past stated that you are a member of this prison gang. And some of them said, you know, people said that you told them to do things that's against the rules. Those were sources of my appeal because in the Title 15, it says you're not allowed to, to very put it kind of layman's terms, you're not allowed to tell people to go stab folks. So my argument was, well, if I told somebody to go stab somebody, write me up for it. I never got a write-up for that. But if I get a write-up, then I get to claim due process, right? Now I have a right to confront my accuser. Now I have a right to see the evidence. So you don't want to write me up for these infractions, even though the Title 15 also says you have to write somebody up if you know that they broke the rules. Well, that's not happening to us. You're just saying, ah, no, trust us, because somebody told us. Um, so anyways, that's, that's, those are the two ways you get back there, basically. Commit a felony or get labeled a quote-unquote gang member. So I would just add to round out the story of mm -hmm. Madrid, because I think it's worth highlighting that mm -hmm. while I admire lawyers that have fought the beast both inside, like uh, Joshua and Kevin, and, and lawyers uh, that have come in and tried to do class actions and other ways, I think we have to 
confront the fact that it, it hasn't worked very well. Uh, ultimately, even though Felton Henderson was scarred, I think, by the experience of learning about these cell extractions, there was an imprisoned person that was literally after being cell extracted, infamously, he was put into a scalding bath mm -hmm. until his skin was like scrubbed off. So the, the pressure points that Joshua was talking about, I mean, the, he was really, uh, for a federal judge, I think he was shocked to the conscience. But other than ordering them to not use cell extraction as much and not use the pressure points and certainly not scalding baths, he ultimately found that under the existing Eighth Amendment precedent, he was only at the very bottom of the system, that he could not hold the whole regime of Pelican Bay to be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. He did hold that holding people who were visibly mentally ill in the regime would be. And so that at least temporarily ended the practice of holding people with active mental illness there. They continued to do it at other shoes, however, and it took years and really only maybe the Ashker case to bring all of those folks in. The problem is that even under Ashker, they can continue to keep people in the shoe for five years for sure. And I think, who knows, they may be able to justify holding people longer than that if they can claim new reasons for doing so. And so I think, you know, if we're all in agreement, and I think anyone who looks at it is, that the shoe is kind of an abomination, like a modern society doesn't have torture chambers in it. In the 19th century, we actually got rid of solitary confinement and said it was uh, too torturous um, and not civilized. It won't be the courts that do that. It's going to have to be a social movement like the one that was mobilized around the mm -hmm. hunger strike. Uh, our legislature actually, you know, I think they were really impacted by that hunger strike. I mean, there were hearings. You've got some awfully progressive change leaders right now, but I feel like we lost some momentum in, in really committing ourselves to ending the shoe. I agree. I agree. And, and, and I don't know, Professor, I mean, you could probably speak to this better than I. A lot of what, what we encountered and just writs, right? Writs of habeas corpus and stuff. And and I got ordered to show causes two or three times on, on my validation and on somebody else's validation. And the CDC just kept moving the goalposts, right? They said, oh, okay, well, we will take away those 1030s. I said, great, so you gotta let me back out in the general population because I'm no longer validated. They said, no, you're under investigation for being validated. But just them saying that they would revisit the 1030s ended my case then I had to start back at the 602 level and go all the way through the process and all the way through the courts and and finally it got to the point where I was paroling and and so there was no more traction but the court cases that I would see a lot of them the courts were resigned in telling CDC how to operate within the prison they they deferred heavily to this idea of we're the court but we don't know how to operate a prison the people who operate the prison are the experts in how to do that so we defer to their expertise in the management and day-to-day -day operations of the prison which really was kind of a setup and and a blank check that like you mentioned occasionally particular cases came along where things were so egregious in a very narrow lens 
they said, okay, you can't do this over here to these people. And you can't take this step with this subgroup in this environment. But none of that affected wholesale change until Asker, right? And, and obviously Asker happens because of the hunger strike. Um, and, and so, yeah, that social momentum, but I would agree, it seems that now years later, and mirac virtually miraculous things have happened within the Department of Corrections, right? The Asker case, folks getting out of the shoe, which then men folks get release dates because they qualified for a board release 20 something years ago, but you can't get a date if you're in solitary confinement because you're a threat because you're labeled as a gang member. So if you don't debrief, you don't get a parole date. Um, I knew a guy that was back there 27 years and he had five to life on a kidnap robbery. He was at a park and saw a lady put her purse inside the back seat of her car and lock it. She walked about 10 feet. He stopped her, persuaded her aggressively, but didn't harm her to go back to her car and unlock it so he could take the purse. He took the purse, got, I think, 20 something, 30 something dollars and ran off. But he was sentenced at the time of indeterminate sentencing. He got validated as an associate of a gang and, and never got to go home for, for 20 some odd years. Um, he actually wound up getting released from the shoe program and then died at Salinas Valley. Um, so it sounds to me like CDC, and I don't use the R, um, doesn't really have a clear policy for validation. Or how they the policy has changed. The policy keeps changing. What really changes is the language, right? So they went from prison gangs to security threat groups, and then security threat groups to levels of security threat groups. In some sense, what they did was broaden the tent of the people that could be validated. They went through, even when I was in the shoe, there was this whole idea of six years of inactivity meant that you can get validated as an inactive prison gang member and go through this process to ultimately make it to the mainline. I never actually observed anybody do that. Uh, people debriefed and went out, but that was always an option. But I never seen anybody get validated as an inactive member and go back to the general population. And I know a lot of guys who got out of the shoe who are now technically in the general population, but they're running a modified program, right? They don't have all of accessibility and all of the quote unquote privileges of the general population because they are still viewed by CDC as the same type of person that they were viewed at when they were in the suit. So from CDC's perspective, it appears that they're like, hey, you guys got out on a loophole, but us at Salinas Valley, right? Us at High Desert, us at wherever, we're not gonna go for that. You're not going to come kill everybody on our yard, right? And so even though there's an end to hostilities and there's very little group-to-group -group violence in prison now, uh, you know, so it's not like everybody got to go back and, and hang out in the sun. Um, CDC is still doing what they do. It just looks a little different and it's quieter and there's no social movement to hold them accountable anymore. Professor Simon, you talked about Judge Henderson earlier. What were his views or what was his statement about um, validations in prison? He pointed out how, he, he, you know, he was 
he saw clearly that this was uh, what I guess we could call Orwellian. That is that it, it, it was a totalitarian sort of a system uh, with huge due process problems. And it, it's, it's, I'll have to go back and read his exact opinion, but he already in 1995 in Madrid, he ordered them to create a due process system for that. I don't, based on what Joshua was saying, it doesn't sound like it ever really happened. They, they, they just moved the pieces around and whatnot. The other thing that really stays with me about his opinion, in addition to being one of the first federal judges to start talking about imprisoned people as subjects of human dignity that, that the law had to respect again, but even when he concluded that under current Eighth Amendment law, he couldn't conclude that it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment. He said, you know, it comes awfully close. He said, he basically said, I'm not in a position to tell California how to run its prisons, but this is like inhumane. It may not be torture, but it's it's fundamentally inhumane. He actually analogized it, and he must have read it in a science fiction book or something. He said, you could imagine a form of incarceration where people would be essentially put into suspended animation I mean, left unconscious for the entirety of their sentence. And he said, you know, that would be something like what this is. We've completely given up on the whole idea of corrections, whatever that was supposed to mean. We're, we're essentially just keeping people in, in, in a form of suspended animation. So he was, you know, he was changed, I think, for the rest. He already was a great champion of civil rights, but I think he became a real antagonist to mass incarceration. And later he became part of the trio of judges who, who essentially forced CDC uh, to reduce its population in the, in the Brown versus Plata case. And I would just add that uh, the admiration and reverence that Professor Simon had for Judge Henderson, um, many at minimum in the SHU program or that were in the SHU program feel the same um there he clearly and you could tell by his opinions and you could tell by what he was willing to listen to he was clearly empathetic in and really did i think the best that he could within the constraints of the system that he operated in but he pushed the bounds there and and yes an antagonist is a great word and so he just his presence gave an element of hope and really was the inspiration for a lot of these class action suits because there was a belief that with him there maybe we can get something done um, and some stuff was done and, and obviously not enough was done i wouldn't put that all on his plate of course but well yeah he uh you know in, in today's terminology of allies he was the greatest ally that i'm aware of that that sat on the court in terms of California uh, prison activism. I think there should be some consideration given. I don't know if they're using Pelican Bay, the shoe for anyone now, Joshua. Do you know if there are people being in prison there on, on any basis? But at some point, it should become a public museum of some sort in terms of the barbarism of, of the mass incarceration period, sort of like they preserve the Japanese internment camps that they built out in the desert. For one, I, I agree. The last time I was there was actually courtesy of, of underground scholars and Project Rebound and other groups of that sort. And Danny Murillo, who is no stranger to, you know, to the hunger strikes, actually in the short corridor stuff, but also 
higher education in prison and stuff, you know, since he's been out. Him and I went up there with a handful of other people, but I believe we were the only two that were actually in the shoe program in the Bay. And we got to go up there and talk to guys taking college classes in the general population. And we also got to walk through the shoe. And I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, so I won't really go into it because I don't think I've entirely processed my opinion or, or my feelings around it. But it was, I believe, a level two, maybe a level one, level two now. They had some hallways where guys were doing art, right? And, and they had spaces that were classrooms. And it was odd, to say the least, to walk down those halls, not shackled, hand and foot, not on a chain gang of sorts trying to go to the library, not having somebody with a gun walking above you on, on the, the iron grill that's over the, the walkways out of the, out of the section. But in some way, I mean, I'm glad that it's not being used for what it was used for before. Again, this was a couple of years ago. Um, but I wouldn't say I was glad to see what was happening there either, right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad that incarcerated folks are getting a chance to do art and, and take classes and that sort of thing. So of course I'm not against the extracurriculars, quote unquote, but like, man, folks died right there, you know? And folks struggled right there really hard. And I'm getting emotional. Um, so to see it a playground of sorts, and, and I don't mean that in in as as to slight the incarcerated folks that are there now, or or to you know discourage them engaging in those activities and taking advantage of those resources and whatnot. So it's not about them, but it's more like this was designed to harm, you know, like like you said earlier. And it and that it did, right? And now it's like it's a playground. And so like CDC, you know, I guess in some way, you know, they didn't have to do that to us. The space is being used very differently now. And and perhaps it's an element of jealousy, right? Even though, like I said, I've been in jail for 16 years. So, but like, man, that we could have used some of that. Right. And and maybe that stuff was happening on level two. I, I never been to a level two or a level one yard, so I, I wouldn't know the details of them programs. But yeah, so it's still being used. It's not being used in the same way. I think the ad segs at particular level four prisons have kind of taken the place of the shoe, so to speak. And I don't know what Corcoran or, or Tehachapi or the other shoes, you know, I don't know what's going on over there. But for the Bay, it, it, that's what it was. And, and it was odd. The whole experience was odd. I'm, I'm thankful to have, to have participated in it. And there was just a lot of mixed emotions around that for, for a million different reasons, obviously. But yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I would assume, you know, different folks. There's probably not a whole lot of us that did shoot time that were then able to walk through there later as, as free men, so to speak. And I'm sure everybody probably got a little bit of a different view. Um, and I wouldn't count any of those as, as wrong, of course, you know, it's an intimate experience, but it was, it was odd. It was odd. 
I know it's uh, difficult and can't really relate, so I can't say I understand. I, I have gone back inside <laughs> when I went back to Chowchilla, but it was honestly, it was even worse off than when I left. So <laughs> do you all have any final, um, any things to share, any final thoughts or anything else related to this that, that you all want to share that you think people should know that maybe we didn't cover? I think people should bear in mind that responsibility for this goes to the very top. I mean, the California legislature actually approved uh, the rough outlines of this plan. Uh, ironically, one of the few things you may know this that they got involved in was coming up with the name for it. And they there's some very <laughs> disturbing hearings where they were basically joking around about how to communicate what their intentions were. They 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 talked about the name Casa No Pasa, just so in case anyone missed that a lot of Spanish speakers would be among the people being locked up there. And then Pelican Bay was supposed to be Alcatraz. Uh, and so they were invoking this most notorious. So that, you know, here you have the highest elected officials in, in our state sort of joking about the opening of a, of a torture center that they were gonna finance. And there really ought to be some reckoning, a kind of truth and reconciliation commission, a list of all the people that died there and, um, mm -hmm. There's, there's, there. History needs to be recorded and documented so that uh, it doesn't happen again. Yeah, I, I echo that. And you know, I haven't heard anybody else. And and maybe this conversation has been happening, and I just, you know, I just haven't caught wind of it. But uh, you know, I really appreciate that that aspect of it, right? Of of a reckoning, and and we've seen that with with other you know, marginalized or, or oppressed groups around the world, right? And, and folks that have had certain experiences. And I think sometimes that stuff can be kind of mocked or, or pushed to the side by the, the public that hasn't experienced it as, you know, just people wanting attention or whatever. But, but the way that you're putting it, Professor Simon, I think it would serve, you know, it doesn't fix anything, so to speak. But I don't think that's meant to fix anything more than it is as much as it is a, a like some level of accountability, you know, um, and I, I guess in my, in my closing thoughts, you know, the shoe got a lot of attention and rightfully so, and and the hunger strikes got a lot of attention and rightfully so, and and all the work of folks incarcerated and folks not incarcerated to to draw attention to particular conditions and and to try to advance just the basic human dignity of folks during time. You know, all that stuff is worthy of the attention that it gets. I would encourage people to not forget. You know, we, we see the headlines of, of there's less people in prison now and, you know, Tracy's clothes and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and those are great things, right? I don't mean to dismiss them. But there's still a lot of people from our communities that are incarcerated in California. And, and they're not hanging out playing playing tennis and, and, and volleyball, right? And the end of hostilities is, is great. Folks are still getting killed in there. You know, uh, uh, I've lost three people that I'm aware of that, that were good friends, some friends from the streets and, and some from prison that have been killed just in the, you know, since I went to Berkeley, um, actually, I found out about one of them as I was walking into my 
sociology of policing class, oddly enough. But so there's still a lot of folks doing time and and the conditions that a lot of people are doing time under are particularly challenging. And, and so I would encourage people to not, not lose the fight, not lose sight and, and not be so naive for lack of a better term, but I don't mean that disrespectfully to anybody to think that this is over or to think that CDC has been defeated, right? And, and whether you're an abolitionist or not, if, if you know what's going on in there, and, and particularly at a handful of prisons with particular demographics of people, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and this notion of rehabilitation, you know, education is increasing, like things are improving in a lot of ways. I guess to to put it simply, but there's still a fight to be had, and and CDC is not excited, right? They are they are not willing allies in this quest. The only allies we really have come from the community, right? And by community, I also mean you know certain legal professors certain academics, uh, not a whole lot, to be quite honest, but some, uh, even certain people in the media. But beyond that, man, the formerly incarcerated population and, and those related or connected to us, the movement still continues. So don't, don't forget about us and don't forget about the folks that are still there. Um, they still need help and support. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like moving forward. But, you know, there's going to be more movements. And I hope that those movements get traction and that the hunger strikes and the end of hostilities and the quote-unquote closing of the shoe doesn't just skip the collective consciousness as the flavor of the week that has passed by. Because uh, that's not the case. That was very powerful <laughs> and emotional. Thank you so, so much, both of you. Thank you, Joshua. I know that that was really tough sharing your experience. And, you know, thank you for being vulnerable and taking the time to share that with us and with our listeners and with everybody. Professor Simon, you have always been one of mm -hmm. our biggest supporters. <laughs> thank you for all the work you do with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. For listeners, if you would like to get involved or learn more about the Underground Scholars chapters, you can visit our website, undergroundscholars.berkeley.edu, and follow us on Instagram at The Underground Scholars. Please tune in to our next episode, The Legal Battle to End Solitary Confinement, Ashker versus Brown, to learn more about the struggle to end solitary confinement.